Okay, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you ever so much for coming tonight to this very special lecture hosted by the International Inequalities Institute. My name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE. It's also my pleasure and privilege to be Director of the III. We have a, um, a very exciting talk today, but before I introduce our lecturer, I want to invite um, uh, Diane Perrins to say a few words. Diane is Professor Emerita of Feminist Political Economy. And let me pass on to you, Diane. Okay. Uh, but I'm also a trustee of the Ava Colony Memorial Trust, who's co-hosting this event tonight with the International Inequalities Institute. Uh, and on behalf of the Ava Colony Memorial Trust, uh, I want to welcome everyone to tonight's lecture uh, and to thank the Inequalities Institute for hosting it. Um, I had the great pleasure and privilege of working with Ava Colony when we were both taught at City of London Polytechnic, which is now London Metropolitan University. Uh, Ava was an economist whose work and passion were concerned with analyzing and redressing inequality. She was an outstanding teacher, writer, colleague, and friend. And given the present high levels of inequality, continuation of austerity, and social deprivation, as well as the political uncertainty, especially regarding the possibility and perhaps the, indeed the, the increasing likelihood that the, Europe, that the UK may leave the European Union. And this was something herself and her family were deeply involved in establishing in the first place. Partly, I mean, not least to uh, ensure democracy and peace within Europe and especially to resist populism. And so I think it's even more important that today we commemorate her life and work. After Ava's untimely death in 1985, Amartya Sen established the trust to commemorate Ava's life and work and to reflect and further her belief in the possibility of social justice. Uh, the trust is made up of colleagues from City Poly, London Met, friends and family, including her children, Indrana and Kabir, who's here tonight, and shared by Chris Alvin, who's also present with us. Um, the principal activity of the trust is to award annual bursaries to economic students at London Metropolitan University, and each year the trust awards six or seven bursaries to students, including refugees and people with very few resources in order to enable them to complete their studies. And by making these awards, we hope to redress some aspects of inequality, thereby acting out Ava's beliefs. The Trust also organizes lectures linked to Ava's interest. The first five of these lectures were published in a book called Living as Equals, and it includes an essay by Amartya Sen on social commitment and democracy. And we're delighted that um, Professor Sudhir Anand will be giving tonight's lecture. But I'll now hand back to Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Di. And, and before introducing Sudhir, I do briefly want to give the floor to Alex Verhoeve, who is Professor of Philosophy. Any of you interested in the, tonight's topic, he's going to say a few words which will interest you about how to carry on being engaged at the LSE. Thank you, Mike. I just uh, want to uh, introduce to you the Global Health Initiative at LSE. Uh, for those of you who are not yet familiar with it, it's an interdepartmental research unit. We put on talks, seminars, work in progress. So if you're a student here or a junior colleague, please do uh, join us. Uh, you can find us if you simply search 
in any search engine global health initiative at LSE. And you can also sign up to our newsletter. So, um, thank you, Alex. Uh, so, let's, 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 let me say a few words to introduce uh, tonight's speakers, uh, both of whom are exceptionally well-known. Sotio Nand has been my colleague in the LSE International Inequalities Institute for the last two years. He is Centennial Professor at the IAI. He's also Research Director of Global Equity Initiative at Harvard University and is Professor Emeritus at Oxford. He's one of the leading economists in the world who's taken the issue of inequality seriously and taking it to the front of the agenda, particularly around issues of health. Um, and it's, I'm really pleased, as director of the IAI, that given he's a colleague, that he's, he's giving this lecture tonight. Um, so Sudhir will talk for about 50 minutes or so. Uh, we'll then pass on to Amartya Sen, who needs absolutely no introduction from me, uh, one of the leading philosophers and economists in the world one of the great intellectuals, and it's a privilege to welcome, welcome him here to the LSE, um, as ever. And uh, Amartya will speak for uh, a few minutes to, do, to comment on um, Sotir's lecture. We will then have, um, hopefully, 20, 25 minutes for question and answer from the floor. So it should be a, a thrilling evening. Um, let me introduce Sotir to give his lecture. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here and to uh, be giving this Eva Kalorni lecture. I had met Eva a few times in the early 80s, um, but subsequently I've got to know her children, and of course I know and have worked with Amartya um, since about that time. So let me start with this um, lecture on global health and inequality. It's organized around five kind of sections. Um, and I'd like to start by um, discussing why health is important. The importance of health has been recognized throughout the ages. We find this view in ancient Greek poetry and in the Hippocratic texts. Democritus, in his book on diet, written in the fifth century BC, states, and I quote, without health, nothing is of any use, not money, nor anything else, close quotes. Now, the reason that health is so important is, one, that it is directly constitutive of a person's well-being. And two, it is a prerequisite for a person to function as an agent. That is, to pursue the various goals and projects in life that the person has reason to value. This view deploys the notion of health as well-functioning as in Amartya Sen's capability framework. But it's not grounded in notions of welfare that are based on some consequential good, such as enabling the person to increase his or her human capital and hence her income. It is rather an agency-centered view of a person 
for whom ill health reduces the full scope of human agency. Again, in the terminology of sin, health contributes to a person's basic capability to function, to choose the life that she has reason to value. Now, if we see health in this way, then inequalities in health constitute inequalities in people's capability to function, or more generally, in their positive freedom. This is a denial of equality of opportunity, as impairments to health constrain what people can do or be. Opportunity is best seen in terms of the extent of freedom that a person has, that is, by one's capability to achieve alternative beings and doings, most of which depend critically on one's health. Moreover, the capability to lead a long and healthy life must itself be regarded as a basic capability, since our ability to do things typically depends on our being alive. Thus, if we apply an equality of opportunity principle in the space of basic capabilities, whether in a national or global context, the reduction of inequalities in health will follow as a direct requirement of justice. In this lecture on global health inequalities, my natural unit of analysis is going to be the country. It is the nation state that has the primary obligation to protect and promote the health of its citizens and to develop and undertake policies to do so. Analyzing differences in health achievement across countries and the reasons for these differences can also help us to understand how health may be improved in countries that are not performing so well. In measuring health, we have to recognize that health has many dimensions, and it's hard to reduce health to a single convenient number. But one, uh, but one aspect of health is easy to measure and is, of course, of overriding importance, namely the simple fact of being alive, as I mentioned a moment ago. A familiar measure of life and death is how long a newborn child can expect to live. This is known as life expectancy at birth or simply life expectancy. The calculation of life expectancy for a newborn infant requires knowledge about the risks of dying in the years <coughs> ahead, which is something that we do not know. Demographers finesse this problem by using information on the risks at the time of its birth, and they calculate how long the newborn infant would be expected to live if the risks of dying at each age were exactly the same as they are today. I want to discuss the 
evolution of global health since 1800. Here is a slide from um, Our World in Data, which is a, um, um, an initiative of the Oxford Martin School. And uh, these charts that I'm going to show have been constructed by Max Roser of the um, Oxford Martin School. In this chart, which looks a bit complicated, but I'm going to explain it, we have for each year, 1800, 1950, and 2012, um, life expectancy of the world population. So to begin with, uh, the horizontal axis lists the countries of the world in ascending order of life expectancy with the length of each country's listing representing its share of the world population. On the vertical axis is shown the life expectancy of the country. And obviously we can't um, uh, identify all the approximately 200 countries by name in this chart. Now for 1800, that's the red line at the bottom here, this red line, we see that the countries on the left, India and South Korea, had a life expectancy of around 25 years. On the extreme right, we see that no country had a life expectancy above 40 years in 1800. Belgium had the highest life expectancy at just 40 years then. Then we move up to the yellow line, which um, is the life expectancy of all countries in 1950. We see that the life expectancy of all countries was higher than in 1800, and the richer countries in Europe and North America had life expectancies then of more than 60 years. But almost half of the world's population, including India and China, made little progress. The world in 1950 was highly unequal in life expectancy, clearly divided between the developed and developing countries. As we move up from the yellow line of 1950 to the green line of 2012, we see that there seems to be a narrowing of that division. In 2012, some of the developing countries, which were worst off in 1950, achieved the fastest progress. However, other countries, mostly in Africa, are still lagging behind, as you see from the extreme left of the green bit of the chart. In the next slide, I've plotted the progress of global average life expectancy at birth between 1960 and 2013. I'm afraid this is not from 1950 to 2012, but I'm using a different data set, the World Bank's World Development Indicators, which provides uh, separately male and female life expectancy for each year, for each country, 207 of them, I believe, um, for the period 1960 to 2013. So it, this chart shows a rising trend in life expectancy 
for the total population and also for women and men separately. Notice here that on average, in each year, women have a life expectancy of about five to six years higher than men, something that I will discuss later on in this lecture. Note also that there's a slight, um, <coughs> that the rise in life expectancy, in global life expectancy, is slightly slower between about 1985 and 2000. But I want to come back now to a discussion and explanation of the evolution of global health between 1800 and 2012, shown in this previous slide. In the 18th century, smallpox had been a leading cause of death in Europe, and other infectious diseases were also prevalent. These diseases, including pneumonia, diarrheal disease, and measles, brought early death to many children. Vaccination, which was developed by Edward Jenner in 1799, was widely adopted thereafter and is credited with major reductions in mortality in Britain and in Northern Europe. The decreases in childhood and adult mortality after 1800 were largely due to the control of disease through public health measures. At first, these took the form of improvements in sanitation and water supplies. Eventually, the germ theory of disease was understood and gradually implemented through measures which included routine vaccination against a range of diseases and the adoption of good, practice, good practices of personal and public health. Improved sanitation required that sewage be disposed of in a way that did not pollute the supply of drinking water. After the cholera epidemic in London in 1854, the physician John Snow mapped cholera deaths from the disposal of sewage into the Thames by two companies. That happened not very far from where we are sitting in this lecture room today. The disposal of sewage polluted the supply of the city's drinking water. And Snow's findings about the link between the disposal of sewage, what he called the fecal oral link, together with the later work of Robert Koch in Germany and Louis Pasteur in France, helped establish the germ theory of disease. Their basic findings that germs cause disease and, in the case of cholera, that the bacteria were spread through contaminated water eventually became common knowledge. But the improvement of public health required action by public authorities and could not have been accomplished through the market alone. The improvements in sanitation, followed by measures based on the germ theory of disease, were the major factors in improving life expectancy in Britain and northwestern Europe 
after 1850. They spread to southern and eastern Europe in the early 20th century and eventually after World War II to the rest of the world. The most rapid increases in life expectancy came from 1950 onwards, soon after the war. They were caused partly by the introduction of penicillin, which had first become available during the war, and partly by what's called vector control, which is the chemical assault on disease-bearing pests, particularly mosquitoes like the Anopheles, which carry malaria. Over the post-war years, life expectancies in poor countries have moved closer to life expectancies in richer countries, at least until the 1990s when HIV AIDS struck in Africa. Inequalities in life expectancy, which had expanded from 1800 when the rich countries pulled away, decreased after 1950 as poor countries caught up and then they expanded again with the HIV-AIDS epidemic. So from this graph, you can sort of um, uh, uh, infer that um, the red line is more or less horizontal. There is quite a lot of inequality in the yellow line, but um, the green line of 2012 is again showing more equality in life expectancy across countries, but with a long tail still uh, of the African and sub-Saharan African countries. Indeed, in many countries, there are still very large numbers of deaths from childhood diseases, from perinatal and maternal conditions, and from hunger, which can all be prevented by better anti- and postnatal care. That, of course, involves giving a mother advice before and after the birth of her child having health facilities available to deal with emergencies and complications, and having clinics and nurses that monitor young children to check that their immunizations are up to date, to ensure that they're growing as they should, and to advise parents. For these causes of death, therefore, the public healthcare system is very important. Yet many countries spend very little on their healthcare systems. For example, it is impossible for a health service to do much good on the abysmally low amounts that are spent per person in sub-Saharan Africa, approximately $100 per year. I want to move on now to measuring um, health inequalities post-1950 a little bit more formally. So it's the, measure, uh, the changes in inequality between 1950 and 2012 that I'd like to uh, uh, track more carefully. That we've seen. This is a, a picture from Angus Deaton's book called The Great Escape. It is called a box and whisker diagram. And um, what is done is uh, the countries of the world are listed in ascending order of life expectancy. So, for example, in 1950, uh, this is the country that has the lowest life expectancy of about 30, 
the box in the middle is um, the box in the middle, the shaded box, contains half of all countries which are in the middle of the life expectancy distribution across countries in that year. Below, so this, by the way, if you were to lay these um, uh, 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 pipes and uh, lines coming out horizontally, uh, you would get a box and whisker, okay? So the bottom whisker consists of the lowest 25% of countries, so that's the first quartile in this distribution. In the middle, through the box, is the median country, the top of the box is the third quartile, or the 75th percentile in the distribution, and the very top is the country with the highest life expectancy. And this is the evolution over time in those distributions, the global life expectancy distributions. So, um, incidentally, one of the measures of uh, in, uh, inequality, well, inequality, the are the range, which simply is the difference in uh, the maximum compared to the minimum life expectancy, top of the box, uh, top of this uh, here to the bottom, and the middle, the length of the box is what's called the interquartile range, the third quartile minus the first quartile. And this figure shows only two countries that are extreme in that they've been left outside the box and whisker diagram in 1990 and 1995 because they were considered, according to the statistical techniques that are used for this, to be outliers. Sierra Leone and Rwanda in between 1990 and 95. But what we see is that the boxes are rising from bottom left, which is 19... 50 to 1954, these are five-year intervals, um, to the top right, 2005 to 2009, as longevity has increased around the world. The horizontal lines inside the boxes are also rising over time. Life expectancy in the median country is going up. The figure also shows the boxes getting in the main, smaller over time. The length of each box, which is the interquartile range, so that the countries are moving towards the middle of the distribution. The dispersion of life expectancy across countries is narrowing, and this measure of international distribution of health seems to be becoming less unequal. However, the narrowing has not been entirely even, and we can see the widening in 1995 to 2000 that comes from the AIDS deaths in Africa, and after that, the narrowing resumes. The bars in the middle of the boxes, the median that is, is also getting progressively closer to the tops of the boxes and to the top whisker which tells us that the gap between life expectancy in the middle country and the top countries, like Japan, has been narrowing over time. In 2005 to 9, there was only a 10.5 year gap between the median country, which had a life expectancy of 72.2 years, 
and the top country, Japan, which had a life expectancy of 82.7 years. But this narrowing has left a long tail of countries behind it, even ignoring the civil wars in Rwanda and Sierra Leone in the early 1990s, the gap from the median to the bottom country has grown from 22 to 26 years. There's another way of looking at the changes in global health inequality across countries. The Deaton box and whiskers figure displays the differences between the top and bottom country, which is the range of the distribution, and between selected other countries in the distribution. A different way of summarizing the gaps between countries is to take the average gap between every pair of countries. This measure is known as the absolute mean difference in life expectancy across countries, which turns out to be nothing other than twice the usual Gini coefficient of the global life expectancy distribution multiplied by the mean of the distribution. Using this measure, of, um, we can examine absolute inequality in life expectancy in years for each year from 1960 to 2013, both for the total population, the middle dark line is the total population, and for females and males separately. So, <coughs> so these are graphed in the figure and show the changes in global life expectancy inequality over time each year from 1960 to 2013. And the figure shows a declining trend in absolute inequality in life expectancy between 1960 and 2013, except for the period between 1987 and 20, 2001, when there was a rise. In 1960, 60, the absolute mean difference between countries was 14 years for the total population, 14.7 for females and 13.3 for males. And after a steady decline until 1987, the gap rose in 2001 to 11.3 years for the total population, 12 years for, males, uh, for females and 10.6 for males. After 20, uh, 2001, the gap narrowed again and in 2013 was 10.1 years for the total population, 10.6 years for females and 9.6 years for males. As mentioned earlier, the period 1987 to 2001 coincides with the escalation of the HIV AIDS epidemic and eventual curbing of it following the introduction of antiretroviral therapy, particularly in the developed countries. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 also had a significant impact on life expectancy in Russia, which fell very sharply, especially for males. Finally, violent conflict in other regions, for example, the Middle East, former Yugoslavia, civil wars in African countries such as Rwanda and Sierra Leone also contributed to the trends observed in this period. I want to move on next to um, uh, 
figure called the Preston Curve. The Preston Curve, in 1975, the demographer Samuel Preston plotted the relationships between life expectancy and national income per capita, now known as the Preston Curves. And here's a diagram also from the Oxford uh, Martin Institute's Our World in Data initiative. For different years, 1800, 1950, and um, uh, uh, 1980, and 2012. From these curves, Preston estimated the proportion of the increase in life expectancy between the 1930s and the 1960s that came from increases in income and the proportion that came from new ways of doing things over time, such as vector control, new drugs, and immunizations. And he then concluded that much had come from the latter. Preston calculated how much life expectancy would have increased if the curve relating life expectancy to income had remained fixed and countries moved along it with economic growth, that is the contribution of income to better health, and how much of the gain came from the upward movement of the curve itself. That's the contribution of new methods over time that permit better health without any increase in income. In a study that I did with Martin Revalian, we tried to understand how income growth in developing countries might affect the achievement of higher longevity at a given point in time. And we recognize that other variables, which may matter a great deal for life expectancy, are correlated with average income. As seen in, the, uh, in this, these present diagrams, the relationship between life expectancy and income is steepest at low incomes and quite flattish beyond some point, like the concave cross-country relationships we see in this diagram. Thus, health outcomes can be improved appreciably if income poverty is reduced. The hypothesis is that a reduction in poverty matters not growth in aggregate incomes per se. The other view, or another view, which I discussed earlier, is that public provisioning of essential goods and services, such as clean drinking water, sanitation, healthcare, epidemiological protection, and so on, lead to improved health outcomes. The hypothesis here is that growth matters if it is used to finance suitable public health services. On this view, the correlation of life expectancy with income in the Preston curve reflects a tendency for economic growth to lead to better provision of health services. Both the poverty reduction and the public health services arguments suggest that the relationship depicted in the Preston curve at a given point in time is to some extent, a spurious correlation. In our regressions on a set of developing countries with comparable data on life expectancy, national income per capita, per capita poverty, all at 
poverty at uh, the $1 a day PPP line, and public spending on health, we obtained the following results. After controlling for the incidence of absolute poverty and public expenditure on health, we found that there is no significant partial correlation between life expectancy and average income across these countries. The significantly positive relationship between life expectancy and income vanished entirely in a regression of life expectancy against poverty incidence, public health spending, and average income. Income became insignificant, and poverty and public health spending were highly significant. Of course, this doesn't imply that economic growth is unimportant in expanding life expectancy. Rather, it says that the importance of growth lies in the way that its benefits are distributed between people and the extent to which growth supports public health services. I next want to move on, um, finally, to, wait a sec, yeah. As we had seen earlier, I want to move on to why women live longer than men. And we'd seen earlier in the graph of global female and male average life expectancy that women as a group live longer than men. In all developed and developing countries, women outlive men, and sometimes by as much as 10 years. See, this is the um, uh, uh, graph which shows the life expectancy of women on the vertical axis and the life expectancy of men on the horizontal axis, different countries with the uh, size of the circle representing proportional to the population size relatively. All of the countries are above the so-called 45 degree line, which is the line of equal life expectancy, male and females. That gender gap has actually widened in the 20th century as gains in female life expectancy have exceeded those for males. Here is the similar graph for 1950, but here you see some countries, including India and some um, uh, Middle Eastern countries, have higher life expectancies for men than women. Well, let me come back to the uh, most recent graph. The death rates for females are lower than those for males at all ages. Indeed, even before birth. Although about 115 males are conceived for every 100 females, their numbers are whittled down thereafter. Just 105 boys are born for every 100 girls because of the disproportionate rate of spontaneous abortions, stillbirths, and miscarriages of female fetuses. More boys than girls die in infancy and childhood, too. Here is a graph which shows, no, this one. Child mortality by sex in 2017, they all are from the Our World in Data uh, uh, base. So here you see that uh, in almost every country, child mortality rate of boys is higher than that 
of girls. And it's quite high, of course. In Chad, it's something like um, 12 percent, 12 percent, 120 per thousand die before the age of five. The available evidence, scientific evidence, implica implicates biological as well as behavioral differences between the sexes. Experts suggest that gender differences in mortality patterns are influenced at least in part by sex hormones, namely the male hormone testosterone and the female hormone estrogen. Elevated estrogen levels are associated with risky behaviors. The experts call it testosterone toxicity. And men are more likely to smoke, drink excessively, and be overweight. Later in life, testosterone puts men at risk biologically as well as behaviorally. Testosterone increases blood levels of the bad cholesterol, known as LDL or uh, low-density lipoprotein, and it decreases levels of the good cholesterol, HDL, or high-density lipoprotein, putting men at greater risk of heart disease and stroke. Estrogen, on the other hand, has beneficial effects on cardiovascular health lowering LDL cholesterol and increasing HDL cholesterol. Estrogen is also an antioxidant, neutralizing oxygen radicals that have been implicated in neural and vascular damage and aging. Emerging evidence also suggests that treatment with estrogen after menopause reduces a woman's risk of dying from heart disease and stroke, as well as her risk of dying in general. The fact that women live longer than men does not, however, mean that they necessarily enjoy better health. It could be that women live with their diseases while men die from them. Indeed, there is a difference between the sexes in disease patterns with women having more chronic, non-fatal conditions, such as arthritis, osteoporosis, and autoimmune disorders, and men having more fatal conditions, such as heart disease and cancer. There is another um, uh, difference between men and women, and that is to do with chromosomal differences which may also affect their mortality rates. Because women have two X chromosomes, a female with an abnormal gene on one of her X chromosomes can use the normal gene on the other and thereby avoid the expression of disease, although she is still a carrier of the defect. Men, in contrast, have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome, so they cannot rely and an alternative chromosome if a gene on one of the sex chromosomes is defective. Given the biological and genetic differences between women and men, any attempt to promote gender equity in health must begin with a clear definition of what is being sought.
The most obvious goal might seem to be equality in health outcomes between the sexes. However, as we've seen, this is not achievable unless, for example, we discriminate against women in healthcare access. Because the two sexes have very different biological and genetic constitutions, any attempt to equalize male and female life expectancy is very unlikely to succeed. Modern medicine does not currently have the technology to compensate for men's biological and genetic disadvantage. Instead, I think gender equity should focus not on health outcomes themselves, but on the inputs and processes that provide the basis for human flourishing for both sexes. Given that certain biological and genetic differences between men and women are unavoidable, the only practicable strategy for reducing avoidable and unfair inequalities in health outcomes between the sexes is to ensure that they have equal access to those resources, those resources which they need to realize their respective potentials for health. I will end with a relevant quotation from Amartya Sen's 1992 book, Inequality Reexamined. Sen writes, and I quote, it is partly to address such issues that Aristotle had incorporated a parametric consideration of, a of, of what a person's circumstances admit and had seen his distributive conception in that light. And I quote, now from Aristotle, for it is appropriate if people are governed best that they should do best insofar as their circumstances admit. Close quote. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sotir. And now I'll pass over to Amartya, who will say a few words by way of comment. Well, that was such a wonderful lecture. Am I audible? Yes. No, this is not needed. No, I wrote something here. Yeah, I mean, other than the heart, I mean. <laughs> but, um, am I audible now? Still, oh, good, good, good. Well, this is a terrific lecture, of course, the congratulations. Um, and uh, you covered such an extraordinary range of topics and, and, and themes related to inequality in the most basic way that affects human life and really enlightened us so completely. So I'm really extraordinarily grateful and privileged to be here. Thank you. I just try to add a few things that I wouldn't try to contradict anything because I'm unable to do so, not because I've been trying to do so, <laughs> but because uh, it, it's so, he's so convincing with all his evidence and so on. Now, uh, <laughs> let me, uh, let me um, begin by noting a particular fact. He came very close to referring to that 
the, if you look at the England and Wales life expectancy, they went up each decade by about two or three years. The two decades in which they went up by seven or eight years, their bumper increases. One was 1911 to 21, and another was 1941 to 51. And the question will be uh, raised as to, did some very good things happen? Well, there was the First World War, and there was the Second World War. Now, it's not, we're not looking at the mortality rate during the war, but at the end of it, 21, 51. What happened and is this, that the, during the war, a lot of things came in that were not practiced before. Sharing, you take the 1941-51, which I recollect since I was there, um, well, not in England, but I knew what was going on here. They were rationing, price control. For the first time, a lot of English poor were having a square meal. At the time when the availability of food in Britain was far less than at before or after. What happened is that because of that crisis, the culture of sharing and connected with that rationing and control and the sharing of healthcare became, in fact, one of the results of that was when 1948 Anna Wynne was opening in Manchester the first National Health Service hospital. He was directly benefiting from experiences during the war of doing things for everyone as opposed to leaving it to the market economy. And I think 1911, Jay Winter had a lovely book on the First World War of how cultural sharing became very important. He ends up by saying, what we need is, a, is the effects of war without the war. <laughs> and, and that, I think, is rather well put. So I think there are two very important things, and they both come out from Sudhi's brilliant presentation. Well, one is sharing and the other is caring. And the sharing, the war precipitated and taught lesson, and of course, sometimes it happened on political ground. In the early days when the Soviet Union was a positive force rather than an enormously regressive example, there was this commitment to share education, to share healthcare across the whole of the Western Europe. European welfare state was an example in sharing. And uh, this is, and this can apply both to, uh, between the rich and the poor, and also between men and women, which is a very important issue here to be considered. And, and here the feminist movement played a major part when people asked the question with all these theories, does it do anything? Well, it does. It teaches a lot of things, of course, as to how to think about uh, economics and how to think about deprivation and feminist economics has enormous lessons on that, not just for women and men, but for any kind of inequality. But on top of that, the not to neglect women 
uh, became countries, including uh, Sudis and my country of origin, namely India, um, the possibility of neglecting women became increasingly more difficult over time, and that and there they, there was a huge contribution of actually um, big um, intervention. And if you look at the mistakes uh, right now, uh, I mean, the main mistakes right now in, in India would be lack of caring, namely the health care, from very little budget. You mentioned two African countries, but India comes pretty close to that. And the reason why the Chinese and the Indian poor are quite different is because the Chinese spend three times as much as the percentage of GDP on healthcare than India does. And so it makes a very big difference. And then you could have things like RSPY, Rasio, Shasto, Vima, Yodhana. What does it do if you have an expensive illness and you can't afford it? The government would pay for it, usually service provided by a private hospital. But where India is lacking most, of course, is primary health care. And for each of these expensive illnesses, there could be about 180 people to which you can provide primary health care. So the sharing is an extraordinarily important part of, of that story, and, and that implicit in today's presentation, but I wanted to just bring that out. And the caring is also, I mean, I was struck by the fact when I was studying famines that in the Bengal famine of 1943, in which uh, three million people died, close to three million people died, about 83% died directly from standard illnesses, cholera, malaria, tuberculosis, and so on. So again, you could stop that with, with medical care, even if there is a famine. Ideally, of course, you shouldn't have the famine. And so it made a difference. If people are interested, I discussed that in the, the Oxford Handbook of Medicine. I'm not, never quite sure whether it's called Oxford Handbook of Medicine or Oxford Dictionary of Medicine, one of them. I have the chapter called Human Disasters where I discuss the numbers and how we can understand that. Now, the caring question has become very big because somehow the, if in India, in the election, this did not play any part. There has been a failure on the part of the opposition, clearly, to bring out the fact that there is a lack of caring of the poor and to some extent of the women and it gradually has been diminishing but it still has to be uh, encountered. The so-called program of Ayushman Bharat, which is really an extension of the RSVY, is really again about expensive illnesses. Now expensive operations happen to you if you have survived these early years, which they talked about, when you don't die, because there isn't the, you don't get the very standard, very elementary illnesses, which kill most people, used to kill most people in the world, but continue to kill many people in different countries. If there's a 
better achievement of Bangladesh over India, and there is. Bangladesh used to have three years of below life expectancy than India, and now has three years more. Though its life expectancy, though its GDP is less than half of that of India, it is this element of being careful about how you spend the money and to whom it goes. And here, of course, the, the NGOs have played a part, but the entire political movement associated with the independence movement where women played a very big part, and women is quite central to the story uh, of, the, uh, of Bangladesh's success um, in, 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 in making that caring a, a, a very big difference. So I think we need to learn lessons, not just from the rich countries, but also from poor countries when they do well. It's not just uh, cheering Bangladesh against West Indies, as happened, I think, yesterday or the day before. <laughs> but it's a, it's a much broader thing. So I'll end up by saying how it's possible to overdo it. And I, I remember, as a, you know, I have been benefited, I and mean, this is a personal thing, I've permitted maybe 90 seconds from that, that I've benefited all my life from being a hypochondriac. <laughs> they said, if somebody were to write about me, I ought to say the best thing he has is hypochondria. <laughs> and when I had cancer for the first time, I was 18, and I was staying in a YMCA hostel, and the doctors all told me there was nothing. It was in the cancer in the mouth. So I said, this looks very unnatural. So I talked with a fellow guest and a fellow hostelier, and he brought me some books, and I diagnosed I had squamous cell carcinoma. But I went to the doctors, and the doctors wouldn't do anything. And they would, the usual talk, they said, oh, aside from cancer, what other fatal illnesses do you think you have? <laughs> so I had to leave them. And then eventually I got biopsies, and they said, very bad news, you have squamous cell carcinoma. So, I, and I think if I was saved, my life was saved, is because I got into radiation very quickly. At the moment, I'm fighting a battle with, with prostate cancer. And again, my doctors thought, oh, we can postpone it. I don't know whether I'll, I'll make this one, but I hope I will. But if I do, it would be because of my hypochondria. <laughs> but the, um, the difficulty, the, when I said you can overdo it, is that um, this is not a serious part of the talk. Uh, <laughs> the, um, when I was in school, I got a, a kind of ailment of stomach, which I think the uh, British imperialists used to call Delhi Belly. <laughs> I decided I had cholera. So I told my doctor that I have, I think I have cholera. <laughs> and my doctor uh, examined me and he said, no, you don't have cholera. I said, and he said, are you very nervous about it? I said, yes, I'm afraid I'm, I have cholera. And he said, look, let me tell you, in addition to all the medical evidence, that I've looked at cholera patients for a very long time, and one of the characteristics is the cholera patients are usually very optimistic. <laughs> and they are not all the time um, 
as pessimistic as you are. <laughs> so I found this a very uh, consoling thought. <laughs> and I went back home feeling very happy and very optimistic. <laughs> and I told the doctor that maybe I do have cholera because I am now feeling <laughs> very optimistic. So I think there are, difficult, there are penalties in hypochondria, but I think the benefits far outweigh the, 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 the disadvantages of that. But I really want to say, end by saying how grateful I am. And like all of you, I think I'm speaking for, for such a brilliant speech from today. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Amartya. Um, Sutia, do you want to respond or should we put that? Okay, we, so, we're, so we're going to, to question and answer. When you, when you speak, please can you introduce yourself and say, say uh, your name and where you're from? And we'll try and bunch questions into groups of two or three so we, have a, we can have a chance to get some questions from the floor. Yeah, in the front here. Thank you. I'm visiting Professor. I'm from China. <clears throat> Thank you for a brilliant, brilliant presentation. In such a short time, you give, a, give us a, such a big picture of the topic. Every, everyone cares so much. Yes, <clears throat> in um, 1949, when Chinese Communist Party took power, the Chinese average life expectancy is 35 years. 30, 35 years. And 17, 17 years later, now, the, the, the number, we, we have more than doubled that number. Roughly, it's, it's around 77 years. My question is that how do you find the Chinese government, the, the, the job the Chinese government has done? And uh, as you said, that in a transition period, I mean, that from the planet economy to the market economy, the Russian, if it's spared the male, life expectancy dramatically decreased. Even during that time, the Chinese government have make everyone let me life expectancy increase so much and um, yes <clears throat> as for the Chinese as for the model as the healthcare model mm -hmm. I'm in opinion that uh, if you are rich enough the British NHS is the best if you are not rich enough then I think that the Chinese model is the best in that case I, you know, I'm in opinion that the West should encourage Chinese development rather than curb that, curb it, like the U.S. is doing now. And for the developing country, I think that they should learn from the Chinese experience. One, if you agree with me. Thank you. Um, hi, I'm Hesim. I'm from Pakistan. I study in the U.S. Um, Dr. San, it's an honor being in the same room um, as you. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, you wrote an article in 1992 in the British Medical Journal I, on... Yeah. yeah, you wrote it. No, he, no. <laughs> you wrote it. <laughs> um, and my question is to either of you okay. um, about missing women um, in, in, around the world, uh, particularly in South Asia, in India, and in Pakistan and Bangladesh. And you estimated around 100 million women missing, and by missing I mean dead, uh, because 5% uh, more boys than girls are born, uh, but girls are more resilient, um, as uh, the professor um, uh, discussed. Does that, do, do your findings still hold true to this day um, about whatever you talked about in that, um, in, that, uh, in that very enlightening paper that you wrote? Because it's very concerning to me, um, because I'm from Pakistan and I care about no, no, gender inequality. Yeah. And, yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
Do we have a female, female question? Get some balance. We'll go by sequence. The first one was to you. Um, hi. We'll go in sequence. The first one was to you, the question. Uh, my name is Karen. I am a social policy and government student here at LSE. And I have a more general question. It's on the responsibility of governments and their impact on development and global health. So in particular, I'm thinking of the global gag rule um, in the American, the, the current government, uh, which impedes any foreign aid budget that is used, um, given by USAID, uh, by a developing country to be used for abortion services. So my question is, how do you, how do, how does one balance, I guess, the political, um, intentions of a certain mandate with a, a bigger sort of wider responsibility that we have with a global health issue? Because clearly abortion is not just about, um, bodily autonomy, but also in many cases it is necessary. And if, if it's not safe, it is, it's resort, resorted to another circumstances. So I'd like to know from an academic point of view your opinions on this. Thank you. Okay, Sutia, do you want to make some responses to, the, to any of those three questions? I think the first and the third are for you. You need, a, you, need a <laughs> <laughs> you are the expert on the first. <laughs> you are the expert on the first. You've written extensively on it. Um, <laughs> Chinese life expectancy, you say, doubled, or more than doubled, from 1949 when the revolution yeah, happened. But one of the reasons was that they still maintained a basic healthcare system. The That's barefoot exactly doctors. Right. Exactly right. The barefoot doctors. And incidentally, and this is what Professor Sen has written about, although he's passed on this question to me, <laughs> is that when the Chinese government made healthcare private, yeah. when it was made private, life expectancy actually fell for a few years in China until relatively recently when they had universal healthcare and since then it's been rising again. So it is really a consequence of the government actions Chinese government actions, which have, um, which explain the evolution of life expectancy in China. That was that. Now, um, was that, what, what was that? Ah, yeah. Now, uh, of course, I mean, you know, uh, you're talking about Mr. Trump, and um, uh, the question is, what, <laughs> what, what can we? I think we're probably all united about Mr. Trump. What can we say? Yeah, yeah, he's got all kinds of uh, policies. Uh, this is uh, one very serious one. It is indeed a global health issue. He's going to cut not just for USAID in the developing countries, but in the US itself. Many states have withdrawn these services. And, um, you know, maybe they're the red states. Maybe they're uh, the states where... Trump has um, a lot of support, but uh, I don't see that the, I mean, obviously, if there were a means of uh, helping or funding um, reproductive health of women in the developing countries through um, aid agencies like, um, like um, DFID and the French and the uh, Germans and so on, I think they will perhaps actually 
make up a little bit of the gap because they too recognize Mr. Trump for what he is. Martin. Yeah. No, I think the question that you asked is, um, is very interesting. The 1990, when I published the um, New York Review article, uh, the summary, 100 million women missing, was not mine. I was very upset and called the editor. My title was Missing Women, and, and he said, more than 100 million missing women. And he said, this would be your best read paper, that's what he said. And I think he was probably right. <laughs> the, um, at that time, there was no sex-specific abortion, very little, because they could not determine the sex of the, uh, of the, of the fetus. So that reflected neglect of uh, uh, girls rather than boys. And that was very prevalent in parts of the world, including India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and so on, and um, Middle East, and parts of North Africa. Now, what had happened is that that went on becoming diminished, and not unrelated, as I said earlier, with the, with the feminist, growth of feminist movement everywhere, including in, in, in Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, here in this room, uh, we, we uh, uh, heard some Pakistani speakers on, on the subject of gender inequality of a very powerful uh, of kind, particularly Arlo Jahangir was uh, thinking of. Um, but as that differential went down, the new thing came in, namely sex-specific abortion. Now, what the mother showed, but only it often is the mother, uh, but jointly the parent, had the, the boy preference they had. Now, instead of neglecting girls, it could be eradicating them in the fetal stage. So if you look at the birth ratio, you see, as Sudhi said, about normally about 95 uh, girls should be born compared with 100. And uh, that range in Europe is between 94 and 96. Uh, but in many countries, it's highly uh, uh, vast, and then you find in uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and there's one reason why India is higher than Pakistan, is somewhat higher, and explain to you how. And China, even worse than India. And the Chinese model may be producing a lot of good things, but it's not producing that. It, it's very odd, because Chinese women are so successful in almost everything, in force, jobs, education, profession, and yet the neglect, the boy preference continues. And the, the Chinese ratio at one stage was 85. It's gone up now to close to 90, but it's still way below both Pakistan and India. 
Now, India actually splits into two parts. Every state in the north and west of India, uh, from Punjab, Haryana, going down all the way to, um, to Gujarat and Maharashtra, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, have below normal girl ratio. Every state in east and the south have normal sex ratio in the European range, 40, 94, 96. And that is all the way from Kerala to Bengal and, and, and Assam. Why? There's a cultural issue. Now, Pakistan is very like, in this respect, north and west of India. And India does better than Pakistan and China because of the eastern part. I have been trying to look at the cultural background. There, there are one or two links. The whole of East India, I mean, first of all, South India comes not from Sanskrit culture, but comes from Tamil, old Tamil. And when Sanskrit got divided between the two basic streams, Soviseni and Magadhi, the eastern part came from Magadhi, and the, in the later phase of what's called Adha Magadhi, you know, the, the state of Magadhi's Bihar, you know, is, is, is Patna, really. So it, every state, Bengali, Oriya, Assamese, and, and Eastern Hindi, got gender in, in, in the 11th century. Was that significant? Is there anything in the thing that feminists are often ridiculed about being careful about language? Does language matter? I don't know. And so you're really hitting at something very, very important. But basically what's happened is that the ratio of missing women has not changed because what was gained in terms of caring for girls has been lost in terms of killing female fetuses. And so it's complicated. So sometimes you and I could chat on that. Uh, it's a very interesting subject. And if I could induce you to... You see, I, nearly everything I've learned in life, I've done it through one uh, great strategy. It is to get a clever graduate student and persuade him to work on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like that to be done here too. Thank you for the question. Okay, we, have, we have time for some more questions. There's one at the back there. So we're going to go upstairs this time. <laughs> Can you give us an estimate of uh, how much it would cost to get rid of that uh, uh, steep dip in the... Why, where are you going? Stay no. there. Why are you so rude? Jesus Christ. Uh, how much would it cost to get that, uh, all those countries in that dip on the left-hand side back to, well, let's say, in the, uh, no, in the first chart, uh, up to a level, uh, let's say, in the 50 uh, percent, uh, medium uh, percentile? And uh, to have an idea also, 
uh, um, to compare it to, let's say, the annual uh, budget uh, spent on weapons by those countries. And there's, there's a woman in the white over there. Um, hello, my name is Sadie Regmi. I'm a public health doctor here in London. Um, my question was in relation to the biological component of um, the social phenomenon that you described. So I'm sure there is a biological component for risk-taking behavior, but I don't know how we can separate that from social expectations of men and women. And if we are to... If we, if we can agree that we can't delineate that, I wonder what measures we could take, what measures do you think we can take to address differences in life expectancy um, if, we then, if we sort of start with the view that it is at least partially or perhaps even largely social. And I, I know you've been trying to get in for a while. Can we, can we rush the microphone over here? Thank you. We have one microphone through the room. <laughs> Mr. Abdulkari, so my question is a bit uh, more uh, how to say. Uh, uh, we've been uh, talking a lot uh, in terms of healthcare of the Cuban model and the Kerala model for primary healthcare in Alma Ata conference in 1970s. Then we had the Bamako Initiative for Africa. Uh, to generalize healthcare through community pharmacy, which deliver uh, low-cost generic medicines. So in the world today, uh, medicine costs very little, essential medicine especially, and uh, basic low-cost intervention exists, especially for uh, basic healthcare, which is what routinely is needed. And we had Dr. Che Guevara leadership in Cuba in 1960. Cuba has very little resource on the hard uh, ruthless embargo from the USA. And despite all that, they did achieve a lot of excellent uh, healthcare outcomes, uh, uh, extraordinary achievement, even to, up to today, that even China uh, cannot match despite having much more wealth. And uh, they did that through leadership. So can we say that uh, achieving universal access in healthcare, even in a country as poor as Ethiopia, which is doing a lot of wonder in terms of development, double-digit growth, uh, if they have the leadership and they have the proper support from the World Bank and other Westerns, donors, and then they tap into their private sector, which is doing so, so many wonders through insurance and other schemes. Uh, is there really a resource problem, or is it more a leadership problem uh, to generalize this uh, access to healthcare, given Cuba model and Kerala model? Thank you very much. Some, some big questions there. Uh, here. do you want to respond to any of those? Um, yeah. As I understood the first of these questions, I thought uh, the, uh, the questioner was asking how much would it cost to bring the countries uh, which have lower than median life expectancy up to the median. Is that what the yes. questioner? Yeah. So obviously I haven't done the calculations, but the, the kinds of things that are cost effective in um, improving life expectancy are, of course, um, trying to save children's lives, because if you save a child's life, that you may be uh, saving 70 years. If you save a, uh, an adult who is suffering from um, cardiovascular disease, you just save maybe seven years. But that, I'm, I'm not making a comparison there. However, 
it, there are lots and lots of interventions that are still possible at the, um, uh, at the lower end of the age scale, children and infants who, there are something like two million children who die from preventable diseases today in the world. Vaccination is quite cost-effective. Many other therapies, such as uh, oral rehydration therapy for um, uh, cholera, diarrheal disease, lots of vaccinations, malaria, some types of treatment for malaria. There may even be a vaccine. Who knows? Mr. Gates is trying to develop one. And there are some trials there. So there are many cost-effective methods of uh, improving the lives, the, the uh, survival of children, which will improve life expectancy considerably in the um, poorer countries. So that's, uh, I can't give you a numerical answer for, as to how much it would cost, but just to say that there are lots of possibilities that are open if um, uh, the healthcare systems, as I mentioned, you know, children should be receiving antenatal and postnatal care monitored for their growth. In India, incidentally, uh, which is probably one of the highest rates of malnutrition, something like 40% or something? Some 39, yeah. 39, yeah. And now, you know, uh, it requires uh, 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 healthcare at... Uh, early stages of infant science, and that primary health care would certainly help a lot to improve the nutritional status of children. So that's that, and um, I, I don't know the cost, but it could be done at relatively low cost. That's my view. Uh, the biological, somebody asked about the, yeah. Of course there are social factors in um, in uh, what I was calling, uh, not me, but some experts call it testosterone toxicity. That's um, testosterone, which uh, uh, they claim leads to um, men adopting risky behaviors, violence at puberty, and so on and so on. But you're quite right, there are lots of social factors which can be dealt with through... Um, through education, through uh, changing cultures, behaviors, um, and so on. There is, however, the point I was trying to make is that there are some underlying genetic and biological factors which cannot be altered, and we have to account for them so that um, when you look at men's and women's life expectancy, some egalitarians think and I'm not going to mention their names, uh, that you should actually um, deny women health care because um, we want to equalize women's and men's life expectancy, and that's one way of doing it. There isn't a technological fix here. You can't alter, at least not in the near term, the genetic composition and biological features of um, males. Uh, but there is a, um, incidentally, there's a very interesting study I recently saw in, I think, a journal called Current Biology 
by a South Korean um, uh, academic doctor. He did a study of 81 South Korean eunuchs castrated uh, uh, boys yeah, and uh, compared it with from the same socioeconomic class as uh, non-castrated boys. The extra longevity of the castrated males was 14 to 17 years higher than those of the non-castrated males. There is clearly a, a biological <laughs> uh, feature there which is explaining that difference. You raise a deeply disturbing question. Kerala and universal health care, I'm going to have to leave to you because you're an expert on Kerala too. Gotcha. No, the, the universal health care in Kerala, I, I couldn't hear fully because of my old age and hearing loss. But um, the, um, the, the three things important to recognize, that in Kerala, it's universal literacy, educational expansion, that was the prime mover, which made people more and more demand uh, universal health care. The second thing is that when Kerala started universal health care in the, in the 1960s, I was a student in, not a student, I was a teacher in, in Delhi School of Economics. And, um, and people went down pointing out that Kerala couldn't afford it because that's a lot of money. But the thing to recognize is that education and health care are very labor-intensive. And if you have a poor economy, you have less money to spend, but since salaries are lower, also you have to spend, you have to make less money available for the same result. The third thing is that if the theory is right and the Chinese, this model thing that we were talking about, that the big growth rate in China was also enormously influenced by having an education-healthy population, a point that Adam Smith made in 1776, nothing can increase your expansion of weight as much as having a healthy, educated population. This, of course, meant that also that Kerala's growth rate was very high, became so when it started, Kerala was the third poorest country, poorest state in India. By the time I was finishing my last book with Jean Dres, that was five years ago, Kerala had a higher per capita income than any other state in India. Strictly speaking, these are national sample survey expenditure, higher per capita expenditure than any other Indian state. Now it all stayed between one, one and three. And those which, and if you look at the picture of the kind 
connected with like like what uh, Anand and Ravalian was that we talked about that those states which spend more money on education and healthcare like after Kerala with Vitamin Nadu, Himachal Pradesh spread across the country also had a much higher growth rate than others so if you are growth man, I mean, it's terrible to justify education and healthcare by saying we raise growth rate that shows real vulgarity but the fact is that in addition to helping you lead an educated and healthy life which is valuable in itself if it did nothing for growth it so happened it also raises the rate of economic growth more than almost any other factor and if this is the point that uh, that Adam Smith made in 1776, it was based on very little experience. And that's why it's a little like when in my college in Trinity, uh, I, I see how Newton measured the speed of sound. Uh, just underneath my office, there is a veranda, and you do a clap, and from the other side, the sound comes back. So he would change the, the rhythm until he couldn't hear the other side because it coincided with your clap. So then you measured the distance, divided it by two, and got the speed of sound. Now, this is a lot of the world's understanding has come, including Smith's understanding of why education and healthcare is not only important in itself, but for everything else that we care about. It was based on very elementary informational input. Now that we have made a huge cult of informational enrichment, that point often gets lost. That it's good to have good information, but you can do pretty good work even when you don't have them. And the particular example of Kerala brings that out very clearly. Okay, thank you very much. It's past eight o'clock, so I think it's been a terrific evening. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Sutia. Thanks to Katya.